Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Nile and I'm podcast with me, Andrea Cleary, and my traveling companion who's nine years old. He's the child of my first <laughs> marriage. It's Niall Ernine. Nile Byrne, Nile Nine. Hi, Niall. Beautiful. Thank you. Enjoy that immensely. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> We're going to Graceland, Niall. We're going to Graceland today. We are. I'm delighted. I'm delighted here. We're going to Graceland and other places. Graceland and other places, yeah. I've really enjoyed doing our kind of one artist um podcasts recently um i did one about Joni. what was your last one that you did steely dan um, that wasn't that long ago steely dan yeah steely yeah dan you did the steely dan one, one. Did, yeah. so just kind yeah. of an opportunity to gush a little bit and talk about why we like the bands that we like um and yeah. some, sometimes they're shared and sometimes they're not sometimes they're introductory but today since i'm going to be talking about the music of paul simon I I didn't want to do a kind of a biographical overview or a you know an album by album overview because I think people are generally quite familiar with his music. He's a funny one in yeah. that like you can you can absolutely call yourself like a a big Paul Simon fan if you only know the hits because they're basically all hits. They're basically all bangers. Um he doesn't have anything that's kind of too niche. So, um, so yeah, instead of just kind of going through his life and his career, I'm just going to talk about some of some songs of his that I think exemplify why it is that I think he is the greatest um, songwriter of the 20th century, I think. <laughs> okay. I think, but I, I think okay. that's not a very. I, no, see, see, now that not I've even the that, best Paul of the twentieth century. Well, yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you you said before we started recording, is he your favorite Paul? And I felt very upset having been asked that actually. <laughs> so I, well, I do love another Paul. Pictures of Paul McCartney on your Insta. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. I'll I'll post more Paul Simon, who is, um, as I said in the Discord, um, my favorite weird little guy. Steve Martin. Thank you. It would be easy for me to stand up here for the next few minutes and talk about Paul Simon's consummate skill as a songwriter and musician, but this seems to be neither the time nor place. <laughs> After all, we all know of his fruitful and successful collaboration with Art Garfunkel, which unfortunately ended in an acrimonious split. We know about his tenure with Sony Records, which unfortunately ended in an acrimonious split. Acrimonious split, acrimonious split. Ah. However, I have had a very strong relationship with Paul for over 25 years, which is ending tonight. What's your what's your relationship with Paul Simon before we before we jump in? Fairly casual. Uh, every now and again, I hear a song that I love or I have in in my life. Mm. Graceland is obviously huge um, in terms of cultural impact and long lasting, and in terms of um, physically, it's like the record that's in every parent's uh, record collection, and it's the one you get handed down, um, mm. which I certainly did. Uh, the record I had is very flimsy. <laughs> it's mm. not a it's not a cool reissue it's a it's a, a very flimsy floppy uh, 12 inch vinyl record yeah mine is yeah like, yeah the original it, it's not good quality like uh no. sleeve at all other than the music yeah but it, it has a charm to it that i really like and obviously mm. then simon and garfunkel known you know for mrs robinson and all that kind of stuff and then every now and again there's just Maybe it's probably like probably my main association really with Paul Simon's music is true films and mm. true like Wes Anderson films are definitely been a few of them. And then just, you know, um, the graduate, it's course. very evocative music. Yeah, it's very evocative music. And uh, and I was listening to a little bit of it there uh, before we jumped on and uh uh, I just love his voice. <laughs> that's 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 the start of it, anyway. That's the start. Well, we can get into like, what about you? Where where does your connection with Paul Simon? Uh, can you trace it? Yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to trace it. I mean, I think I think the earliest I could trace it would be to a music class in primary school when we learned to sing Scarborough Fair mm, and yeah. I didn't know who Simon or Garfunkel were but we just had the the melody like just just the vocal line of the melody written out with the with the words and we learned it and I thought it was like this old English folk song because we'd been kind of <laughs> learning folk songs we'd learned I mean, like fair. green sleeves and we were kind of learning all, all these kind of quite um quite old like classical songs and I had no idea that this song was like from the 60s because it doesn't sound like a song from the 60s especially when you have a class of 30 like third class students in Finglas singing it especially <laughs> um so I think I think that's that's probably my earliest memory of properly engaging with their music but they're one of those I'm saying they like I, it's kind of Paul and then 
you know, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, it's kind of ubiquitous, right? Because, I mean, I, I watched The Graduate when I was, um, I'd say maybe 14 or 15, and I loved it, and I loved the soundtrack. And I was like, right, this is this is Simon and Garfunkel. I get it now. So I bought some records. Um, I think maybe Sound of Silence was in my house when I was growing up. Um, mm. But I didn't, I didn't listen to it when I was younger because it was two guys looking like they were walking into a forest on the cover. And I was like, nah, that doesn't sound exciting. I'm just going to listen to Abigold again or Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon again. <laughs> I was like, this looks boring. Um, but then once I, I, I can't remember what it was exactly that clicked with me. Um, I think maybe just becoming a teenager and becoming interested in kind of American counterculture and folk music and the 1960s. Then I kind of found my way in and just fell in love with the harmonies, the the guitar lines especially, I think, was the thing that drew me in um, once I started to play the guitar and realized how difficult it was to play the guitar. I was like, oh, shit, mm. this guy's this guy's a wizard, you know. So, yeah, I think that was my that was my way in. Um, but I've just always loved Paul Simon. I think he's just been present. Yeah, he's my favorite weird little guy. Um <laughs> So I mean, <laughs> can I use that for the episode title? <laughs> Paul Simon, my I favorite just, weird little guy. Like so, <laughs> sometimes I like hyperfixate on like words and phrases, and right now it's just the phrase "weird little guy," and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know if it's thing if it's a thing that's happening in culture, if it's a meme or not. But I'm just liking it at the moment. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, so like like Joni. Paul Simon is is an artist whose career spans, you know, at this age, like six decades. Um, he was born in Newark in New Jersey in 1941, and he grew up in Queens, where he met Art Garfunkel at school, and they were school buddies and both liked to sing and both liked to harmonize with one another. So they started to perform together in 1956. Um, I had a kind of a tricky stop start thing at the beginning, which I'll get into, but they they went on to record five albums together and had a very successful career, but also a lot of albums like Paul Paul Simon's really interesting and, and Simon and Garfunkel are very interesting because out of like all the artists that I love, the like these songs are probably the songs that have been like reappraised the most um in terms of like maybe didn't hit right at the time. People didn't like it very much at the time. People didn't really like bookends that much at the time. Um, but then this kind of reappraisal thing happens um, decades later, um, which I find very interesting um, because I can't imagine a world in which you'd hear like the sound of silence and not think it was the best thing you'd have ever heard in your life. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, so, so Simon and Garfunkel, performed mostly songs written by Paul Simon, the odd one written by Art, who obviously went on later to have his own solo career, which I won't be talking about in this podcast because I I don't know anything about it. I really don't. I don't. I mean, I know that one Art Garfunkel song and that's it. And I've just, it's not that I've no interest. It's just. Um, yeah, it's fine. I just He's never like really Ridgely. went there. <laughs> yeah. I just, like, I don't know. Andrew Ridgely. 
just you know it's fine you know yeah i feel like i picked a side after the split and i chose correctly <laughs> um yeah but yeah so i guess the first song i want to talk about and kind of talk talk around and in, in terms of like what makes them so interesting um is the deeply iconic sound of silence i was texting my friend carlo earlier about paul simon and i was saying like I, I really wish that the sound of silence hadn't become a meme, like the hello darkness, my old friend thing, because I think yeah, yeah. you get the impression at the beginning of the song that it stays that dour and that sad and that bleak and that it's a really bleak song. But as we'll hear it, it, it really isn't, but this song had a really, really interesting kind of recording history. So no one needs a reminder of what it sounds like, but why not? Um, let's have a listen to sound of silence. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light It split the night the sound of silence and in the naked light I saw so that's obviously uh, Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel um, that is if you were to listen to that version of that song um, it is the Sound of Silence acoustic version um, which was actually first recorded as Sounds of Silence um, written between 1963 and 1964 by Paul Simon and recorded in 1964, um, just after they signed uh, with Columbia Records. I think this might have been the song that got them signed. Um, it appeared on their first album, Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., and was a commercial failure. Um, so this is the song with just the guitar, just Paul Simon's voice and Art Garfunkel's voice. And... I think I, I think it's really interesting that when, when you kind of when you think of Simon and Garfunkel now um, in this kind of reappraisal, the things that you think about are the harmonies, the very virtuosic, virtu, vir, virtuosic, that's the word, right? Mm -hmm. Virtuosic <laughs> guitar playing um, and the really evocative lyrics. And this song had all three of those things and yet it was a failure. So. What happened then? Well, they they parted ways for the first time and not the last time. And um, Paul Simon moved to England for a bit, and Art Garfunkel um, went back to his studies at uh, Columbia University. But that was not to be the end of Simon and Garfunkel, as we know. Some radio stations in Boston started to play the track a year later in 1965. And Tom Wilson, who produced the song, kind of picked up on this and was like, hmm, we should, we should re-record that and make it sound 
better for the radio and more playable for the radio. So he got some session musicians in to remix the track. Uh, he overdubbed it with electric guitars and drums and bass. And this was all without the knowledge of Paul and Art. Like the first time they heard about this was after it was released. Um, oh, great. The, yeah. So the first time Paul Simon That's had heard what had been done to this song was <laughs> after it was released you know it's kind of remix it's, yeah i mean it's not dissimilar to the um the the issue with the beatles and having you know yeah, um, true, like true. it's you know it's a, 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 another paul being incredibly angry that their that, that their song is being messed with and and paul simon was reportedly horrified by the remix by the the additional you know um kind of I don't know, like it doesn't sound rocky, but it definitely it definitely grooves once you kind of get into it, which is really interesting. So, yeah, could, could, could we listen slightly to what it sounds like with the electric guitar? People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices never share no one did disturb the sound of silence. Fools said I you do not know. Silence like a cancer. Blow. So it's all very I don't know, it sounds like everything else probably at the time. It's very like yeah, standard I, almost. I yeah, I really like it. And I I wonder did Paul grow to like it? Um because I, I feel like I've seen performances where they've played this with the full band, but I've also seen just as many or probably more performances where it's just him and art. So I don't know. I wonder mm, when they do it in, in New York, did they have the full band I'm trying to think when they did central park? can't remember. I'll, I'll, I'll look into it, but um, I really like it. I think, I think if they didn't have such talented musicians in the room, um, it wouldn't have gone as well. Like there's a cool kind of a blues lick that comes in, in the, in the electric guitar part, like towards the end of the song that I really like. I, I guess the only problem I have with, with it is that it maybe buries Paul Simon's uh, variations that kind of come in towards the end of the song on the guitar, which are really, really beautiful. And when you listen to the acoustic original version of it, you really get a sense that, like the guitar is the third part in their harmony um mm, yeah because what what i love about this song as well i think it kind of it's a great example of their kind of unorthodox way of harmonizing with one another like obviously art is taking the the melodic line but paul is kind of he's not making the sort of the obvious choices when it comes to how he's harmonizing like it would be very easy for him to harmonize you know like to to, to go in kind of um like con contrary motion um so as art's going up he goes down and then they meet in the middle or they meet at a third or they meet at a fifth but mm. he kind of like the song starts in e flat and paul kind of just stays at e flat for most of it like his, his part is like hello darkness my old friend like he just it, it's it's just this kind of like monotonous thing and 
and it's 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 interesting because it's not it's not um it's not trying to make a thing out of how good they are at harmonizing but inadvertently or or because of that it it makes that that upper register kind of uh melodic line that art sings so beautifully really sing like it makes it really lift and then later on when when their voices do kind of come in 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 unison it just sounds so lovely like i always think in the in i think it's like the third verse that the pair that when when they say like uh the people bowed and prayed to the neon gods they made they both sound kind of like they're smiling or like they're i don't know there's a kind of a knowingness in in their voice and i i I don't i don't know like i doubt they were smiling i doubt they were laughing or having a good time while they were doing that but there's just something that happens in their vocals and that and i can't figure out whether it's something that happens harmonically or a shift in in their tone or because they kind of move more towards unison i don't know what it is but it's fucking magic (laughs) and it's it's yeah it's it's really wonderful i think I think as as a kind That's of music a, baby, yeah, as as a kind of a harmonic um, guy, <laughs> um, Paul is just he is really unorthodox. Like I I I was watching a this is a while back now. I was watching a video of a singer who was talking about um, she's a professional jazz singer, and she was talking about how difficult she finds it to harmonize along with Simon Garfunkel songs because she'll. Like as a, as a woman, if she hears like two male voices, she can mm. usually find the easy way in, like singing like a third above or a fifth above what whatever the melody is or whatever the root is. But because Paul Simon has, he, he just has a, a kind of a an intrinsic desire to move towards slightly strange chords that like he, he'll throw you off in that way. Like he he will rarely just play like, a C or a D or whatever. There's always these kind of sevenths and these really interesting leading notes, and he he just kind of finds ways to move through music that just constantly fascinates me. Like I, I'll I'll hear mm. something in a song that he does, and I'm like, wow. And I'm not a guitarist, and like I like whenever I listen to a lot of Paul Simon, I really want to like pick up a guitar and understand what it is that he's doing on the fretboard because, um. I, I just see, yeah, he's a genius. Okay, no, I'm going too much into gushing now. So, no, good. Gush <laughs> Critic away. hat back on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I yeah, I love that song as an as an example of their kind of their their harmonic uh, capabilities. And obviously, like this is an episode about Paul Simon, but credit has to be given to Art Garfunkel for his vocal performance in that song because it's just absolutely amazing we're not going to talk about bridge over troubled troubled water or we might later but um i mean i think that's one of the best vocal performances by anybody of all time um so art he can sing when he wants to he's another weird little guy (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean mean, are you say i'm a weird little guy oh you're totally a weird little guy i love it (laughs) i'm a weird little guy we're all weird Weird little guys guys unite (laughs) (laughs) um yeah do you do you find that you the kind of the cultural saturation of the sound of silence and the kind of memification of that song has that has that um affected your ability to enjoy it do you think well i haven't tried to listen to it or anything since Mm. that uh, i guess it's been a meme because you kind of hear it a lot (laughs) even i know it's just that line but you know um no but i haven't consciously put on a simon and garfunkel record for a long time really Mm. i remember like be having a job in a toy store 
in uh when i was like 19 or something what age was i hold on yeah 19 because the strokes album came out that year and i remember we had it in the shop and i remember we used to put this on in the morning a lot mm. um, uh, the album so it was just like always <laughs> just on but it kind of united everyone because well it was kind of like you know it wasn't my choice, I'll be honest, but it was mm. a choice of somebody who, you know, was maybe less adventurous than than us. I mean, we weren't basically. Sure. What I mean is we were we were playing all the new releases and then somebody who ran the book section was like, can we play something else? And was like, yeah, OK, so we were all just settled on this. I, fine. I connect with happy, the person happy who enough ran the to book do section. It. That's, yeah. <laughs> yes, I thought you might. <laughs> but no, it is it is uh, it is something that's. Uh, it's just it's just like i don't know they're just there and they're present and they're, right they're such good songs and you don't even have to go back to listen to them that often because they're so good you know what i mean they're yeah like, they're there and uh, yeah yeah I was, we were talking about this uh, i was having a conversation about kind of paul simon's music earlier and it's like they're so entrenched in so much of culture like obviously there's the sound of silence meme thing but also like Mrs. Robinson as a concept. I, I know the concept of, of Mrs. Robinson comes from The Graduate. It was originally uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, um, but, the, you know, the name was changed. But, like, he's, his music is so kind of entrenched with certainly our generation. I wonder what Gen Z know about Paul Simon. Um, but, like... Where's Paul Simon TikTok at? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I have to start it. But, like... I don't know. It's 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 funny because he's both considered to be one of, if not the greatest songwriters of the 20th century, and yet I still have this feeling that he's underrated somehow. That he's 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 appreciated as a songwriter, but maybe if we talk too much about his songwriting, we ignore his musicianship. Or if we talk too much about his musicianship, we ignore his. Um, his vocals or do you, do you know what I mean? He's just, he's such yeah. an all rounder. Like he's an incredibly um, learned guitar player. He doesn't like his own voice. He never really wanted to be a singer, but I, I absolutely love his voice. I love how his voice when he sings is really similar, not in accent, but in tone to how he sounds when he's speaking. And it's this kind of like New York accent that I've no idea if it exists anymore, but like, all the kind of counterculture 60s people who came out of New York all kind of talk like Paul Simon in this really, really pleasant, um, really pleasant accent. Um, I think Ezra Koenig maybe has like a similar thing um, in that when you hear him talk and sing, the tone is certainly similar. But but yeah, so that, that sound of silence. Um, the next track I want to talk about uh, comes from the 1968 album Bookends um, which was an album that took me a while to get into I remember um, it's a it's a concept album um, as I'm want to present on this podcast whenever I can I just try to bring a concept album whenever I can um, and it spans a life from childhood until the end of it you know bookended and it's got it's got some really really beautiful tunes on it and you know the, the bookend theme is is such a wonderful piece of guitar playing and very very short um, and I think this album 
and the song America from this album, um, which is, you know, obviously probably one of his most famous songs. Um, I think this appealed to the part of me that when I first discovered Paul Simon's music, like properly started, you know, buying records and reading lyrics, I I sort of stepped into this like invested sense of what America was or is. Like I lo- I really like viewing America through his eyes because I think he he gives it a sense of isolation but also a sense of unity that I don't know it's it's so difficult to kind of get that outside of novels like I as a young person I'd never been to the states still have never been to the states but I'd sort of started to get into reading like you know great American novels around this time like I I started reading Steinbeck like I, I read The Grapes of Wrath I read On the Road I got really into the beats but I I I, I was really interested in this sense of kind of like the vastness of America and mm. I feel I I think he is a classic American songwriter like he is. I, absolutely and I think he he it's just that kind of sense of expanse that I get from Steinbeck that I also get from Paul Simon like like Amer- the the song America it to me is is just as important a text as like the grapes of wrath when it comes to distilling the kind of the great American experience, you know, of the twentieth century American experience, um, and and I like part of it is, or maybe um, we'll we'll take a little listen to it and then um, I'll come back and tell you why I love it. So we bought a pack of cigarettes and this is why. So a song known and loved by many and I think that this song is just it it really this was the song that grabbed me really um when I was younger that just made me feel like I was a part of this story and it's a it's an important part of the story of the album it follows two two young people setting off on on a road trip hitchhiking getting on buses across America um and it's based on a road trip that um, that Paul took when he was younger and I think there's just such a beautiful specificity I mean I've talked numerous times on this podcast about like very specific you know items or place names in music and I don't know what it is that makes those things appeal to me so much but I think it's it's maybe that interest in very um, lyrical almost literary writing in um, in songs and 
I, I, I just love the sense that he, he just captured this sense of America as, as, as a search, as, as something that you do instead of something, uh, instead of somewhere you live or, you know, something to aspire to. It's, it's that whole kind of, you know, the lie of the American dream or like, you know, the Greyhound bus from Pittsburgh, the, the feeling that everybody is searching somehow for the same thing in the same place and getting nowhere. But, because this is written from such a kind of a youthful um perspective it has that innocence like the the you know the opening lines are um let us be lover lovers we'll marry our fortunes together i've got some real estate here in my bag so it's like every everything i have is here it's in my bag that's that's all we need let's let's go off out and find you know ourselves and maybe a marriage maybe a house who knows and that kind of feeling of running away from home to find somewhere and make a life, it, it it holds a kind of a great bleakness as well because there's that sense of just being tired, like being always on the road, always searching for a place to call a home. And then it it's just rounded up so beautifully and so like heartbreakingly at the end when he looks around and he's just one of all of these cars on the New Jersey Turnpike and everybody else there has come to look for America. And there, there is a kind of a great unity in that, but there's a great sadness in it as well. It's like, there's no, there's no settling down in America. There's no, there's no place that you can truly call home. You always have to be searching for something. You always have to be um, achieving. Yeah. Yeah. You're restless. And, and, and I think that that speaks to, the idea of of the American dream so brilliantly without being, you know, really blatant about it. He's he's said numerous times in interviews that he doesn't like songs, um, you know, like protest songs that that preach to people or tell people, you know, we have to get out on the streets or we have to do this or we have to fight this or we have to stop this. But I think I think he he, he sort of distills what it is about what makes people feel restless or what what even you know inspires unrest really well by just imagining scenarios with actual human beings in it and in individuals within a collective group like i think um like there's the the beautiful line the um laughing on the bus making making uh na- games with the faces um the she she said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy i said be careful his bow tie is really a camera like that's a really that's a beautiful way of kind of portraying um time passing or like how you make time pass when you're on a bus with somebody like you play games you play i spy there's a sense of like the world going past them outside and they're just trying their best to to keep their spirits up and 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 make uh make fun for themselves but also like i've always felt that there was a weird like almost mccarthy-esque as in mccarthyism not paul mccartney um like uh, mccarthyism-esque thing about the spy and the bow tie hiding in the camera and the idea that yeah at this time you know america was kind of coming out of the mccarthyism era where (laughs) people felt like they couldn't trust each other and people felt like people were watching them and um and i don't know if that was a time of spies and you know yeah when i was in washington 
um, the first time I went to Washington, I went to a spy museum. There's a spy museum there. Mm. It shows you like, which is fascinating because it's all like, it's not like really about history, but it's all about the paraphernalia that they use in order to like capture images and oh. it would be stuff like that. There was like wooden pigeons with cameras in them and stuff like that. Exactly. Or shoes with cameras in them. So there's, there's a lot of that actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's American such a folklore. Mm. Yeah. It's that kind of like, it's like not quite Bond, but it's more like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like hidden message, like hidden codes in in uh, in pens and invisible ink and bow ties in cameras. I think is is absolutely a, a, a fair thing that um some somebody might be thinking about, you know, just coming out of this era. And I've no idea if that's what he meant by that by that line, but I always thought that that's what he meant. I always imagined this sort of faceless you know person just just there just this kind of visual of of you know we're we're watching we're keeping an eye and this and this is as much part of america at this time as anything else you know so yeah i love that song i love the lyrics in that song and obviously it just sounds so beautiful like the those those ooze at the beginning like you just you sink into it like you're sinking into a bath it's so wonderful do you nice, love this song? Lovely. Um, I honestly probably am not as familiar as you are with it, to be honest. Okay. Um, but it's nice to uh, well, you spend are now. time with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is yeah. great because it's not like, I don't think we need to do the, you know, wide angle lens. It's nice just to focus in on a few aspects of Paul, of Paul Simon's work and just really mm. like, oh yeah, this is nice. Yeah, so I'm yeah. enjoying this. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, I didn't. On the bus. On the bus. In, I, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't include this song on, I'm, on my list, but kind of related to the idea of America um, as as a topic that Paul is is constantly in conversation with. I think we can definitely talk about um, Mrs. Robinson, which is a song that you mentioned that you love. Um, yeah it's just like I mean when you were do you know what it's great about that song it's just like it's so immediate it's so perfect when you're young and you hear that song you're like this is for me right <laughs> you know, it's so like it's so like pure pop it's like you have not heard a pop song uh, mm. when you're growing up until you've heard Mrs. Robinson it's like it has that kind of like whoa this is every, this is brilliant every line is brilliant and you yeah. know every line is every line is a hook and it's just a perfect song in that way, you know, like, especially when you're, when you're a bit younger and you're like, maybe you're, you're, I'll say it's not sophisticated, it is sophisticated, but it's, mm. you know, it's easy to follow when you're young and like a song that you're like, yes, I love this song. It's great. Yeah. And you don't yeah, care I think, what it's about really sometimes. I, but. I, I think part of that immediacy of it is the fact that it starts with the word and. So you're like, you're like, oh shit, I'm, am I like halfway yeah. through a, like, and it's, and, and here's to you. So it's like okay, we're 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 toasting this Mrs. Robinson character. I've no idea where I am, but I think uh, like, am I at a party? Is is everybody here celebrating Mrs. Robinson? And and you're just immediately within this, and then it's followed up with Jesus loves you more than you will know, and it's like, what does that mean? Like, what's Jesus got to do with it? You're you like you're two lines in, and you're already wondering. Who is this person? Why are people toasting her? What's Jesus got to do with this? <laughs> Heaven holds a place for those who who pray. And like I've I've, I've watched videos about 
I've watched videos of Paul in in uh, in conversation with people about songwriting, and this song obviously comes up a lot. And it was written um, for the graduate, and um, or it, it was it was partly written when it was agreed that Simon Garfunkel would uh, do the graduate soundtrack, and he played it. Uh, for the director and the director was like I love that we just need to change it from Mrs. Roosevelt to, to Mrs. Robinson he was like great and it was it was unfinished and they had you know the the dee 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 de, like and the doo doo doos all, all of that was just kind of placeholders but the director loved it so much because it just gave a sense of of um of playfulness maybe and of of youth and vitality and obviously that's such yeah, an I mean, important that's why part so of, well of the juxtaposition between well. like those two characters as well like so it's just so good and i i think like one of my favorite lines in it is the where have you gone joe dimaggio our nation turns its lonely eyes to you and I have agonized over what that means for so many years. And you can imagine how deep I've gone in my mind about like what that means and what, what the, the figure of Joe DiMaggio and its nation, like this nation turning to him. And then I watched a video of Paul Simon and he was like, I, I just wrote it. I didn't know what it meant. And I waited for it to mean something a few years later and I just couldn't find it, but I hope it means something to other people. And I was like, (laughs) I was like partly absolutely devastated that he couldn't give an explanation of like why he was saying this about Joe DiMaggio. What's the meaning of life? What does it mean, (laughs) Paul? Why Joe DiMaggio? It means nothing. I know. But I'm, and, but, but it's kind of something that I really like about him or that I've grown to understand. And actually, like to bring it back to the Beatles for a second, it's something that I I grew a a much richer understanding of when it comes to songwriting, because I'm not a songwriter. Um, Like when when I watched Get Back and I'm sure you, you found this as well, when you watch Get Back, the 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 feeling of, of these geniuses writing these completely like groundbreaking wonderful incredible songs but they don't know what the words are going to be so they're singing just any old nonsense and that's how they find their lyrics like something in the way she moves attracts me like a cauliflower like that that whole thing and then you know you get you get the song something out of it one of the greatest love songs of all time and i think that i i really admire that um that paul simon just really liked the the kind of the poetic sound of the name Joe DiMaggio because it's a beautiful name like it's just it's a gorgeous sound in your mouth to say and to sing and I'm like yeah okay but there's just such a I don't know like there's the candidates debate and like what what else is there like you know the pantry with your cupcakes like it it does give a sense of like of of this kind of middle America like middle class America like all you know and and these are its heroes and what is mrs robinson with within all of this like it's just it's such a it's such a jovial and beautiful song um and it's also kind of it's also kind of sad um like all of them i think well do you know what i'm what i'm realizing now that we're talking about it that the very Mm. first time i heard this song was actually a cover um the lemon heads (laughs) oh my god dando doing doing mrs robinson and that's kind of a strange song in 1992 to do i would imagine yeah what what, was that was that for a movie uh yeah apparently it was for the other sister i just looked it up there it seems like a very 
no, 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 it wasn't for that. Sorry, it does associate with that, but I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. Um, they specifically covered that and why it was a big MTV2 hit um, at the time. Uh, don't really know, um, but there you go. That was probably the first time I ever Oh my God. It. On the um, Wikipedia page, it says that um, it was also covered by Bon Jovi. Oh yeah, I remember that one actually. I don't I do remember, remember that, that one. Should should we yeah. drop it in? <laughs> oh, I haven't I heard know. it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen okay, to 15 okay, seconds okay. of it and then I'm gonna tell you my reaction. Okay, <laughs> okay you, you know second. what it's gonna sound like if you can. Do you know, I? Yeah. <laughs> John, you do. You do. You do. Mrs. Robinson. Here we go. Oh, it's not on Spotify. No. Okay. I think there's only a live version. Is there only a live version? Oh, maybe. Okay, one second. Okay, I'm going in. Fucking Chris Evans right out the bat. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be just a song they liked. They they kind of didn't do anything to it. (laughs) No, they didn't. At least uh, Evan Dando and the Lemonheads turned it into a rock song. And then they said, wow, 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 instead of hey, hey, hey. I, I, I quite like the Lemonheads one. I think it's fine. It, 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 in a kind of a like. Okay, a, I'm going to play 10 seconds of it. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> it's just kind of bizarre it's just like uh yeah do you know what i um, i think the Lemonheads understood the essence of that song i think i think they 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 know it they understand it and they're coming at it from a slightly different angle but i'm fine with it I, i know i know i've heard that in i mean I feel like that song must have been in like American Pie, right? With the whole Stifler's mom thing. Was it? Yeah. 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 I think it also must have been an American Pie because I've I've seen it in one of those kinds of films. The like awful time in all of our lives. Yeah, that kind of it kind of fits with that. It fits with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, that's Mrs. Robinson. That's Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. Was it in American That's Pie? Right. You are correct. American yeah, Pie. yeah, because yeah, yeah. the whole Stifler's mom is hot thing. Um, yeah, that makes. Y- you can't not put sense. the Lemonheads yeah. in. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, the 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 music. Um, what do you call the people who do music for films? I'm blanking on that. I know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a job. Music supervisor is uh, that it? Music supervisor. Supervisor. Yeah. yeah. Music supervisor. Yeah. The music supervisor had an easy job that day. Just like, yeah, let's yeah. let's yeah. It's always easy if you have the budget. That's all. Mm. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, so now, I mean, let's talk about Graceland. um, Because. Yes, please. (sighs) There's there's a lot to talk about with Graceland. Um, (laughs) Let's start by listening to maybe the song Graceland. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Let's do this first.
Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. All right, that's a nice scene setter for what we're going to talk about. Um, yeah, Graceland. Where do we stand with Graceland? So that's probably the album that you're most familiar with when it comes to Paul Simon's work, I would imagine, is it? In terms of like yeah, albums. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think it's really interesting, actually. I I never, I don't tend to listen to Simon and Garfunkel or Paul Simon, like the rest of Paul Simon's work as albums i have a lot of playlists of songs Mm. that i love that i feel kind of fit together well or just kind of you know just my favorites just playlisting but graceland is kind of the only album of his that i i find it really hard to just listen to one song from it because every one of them is very much of a piece and of a um it they're all so inextricably linked by tone and by I don't know, just by like how exuberant and bright and brilliant it all is. Like it's so unapologetically masterful. Like, do you know, it's just, it is one of the best, it, like it, it for years it was my favorite album. Um, but I don't now speak publicly about what my favorite album is because I'm trying to be very mysterious on, <laughs> over my own podcast. But it was, I mean, like Grayson, I remember when I first started writing about music, I had it in my bio, like, Graceland is Andrea Cleary's favorite album. That would have been like pretty much my whole bio because that's all you needed to know about right. me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But its cultural significance is is still huge and was obviously huge at the time. It for for a lot of people, myself included, it was maybe the first time I was hearing what is problematically termed "quote unquote" world music and and fusion music. Um, and it's it's a very, very tricky album to talk about because to talk about Graceland, you have to talk about things like apartheid and boycotts and, you know, cultural boycotts and all, all of these incredibly conflicting ideas about what is and isn't appropriation. You know, what what is, what is appropriate when you are a, a white American person making music with black South Africans in an apartheid regime and what what is i think the most fascinating part about all of that is that none of that is in the album it's not addressed yeah. the album isn't about apartheid and and i don't know i think that a lot of people have a problem with that a lot of people don't have a problem with that i think the album's perfect um but i i i do just want to say up top like it's an incredibly complicated issue. I'm not, I'm not going to come in really hard on either side of whether I think it was the right thing to do or whether I think everybody's actions were 100% above board. Where I land is just, I'm very, very grateful to have this album in the world and in, in, in my life. So that's kind of it. But um, the, I mean, the song Graceland, to, to kind of bring it back to, to, Amer- to the song America, um, I, I do kind of see them as like brother songs in a way, even though they're, they're you know, decades apart, um, because this is another song about searching, about being on a road trip. But here we found we find our hero, you know, with the child from his first marriage sitting in the seat beside him, and 
they're going to Graceland. And it's like, why, why Graceland? Um, what, what is it ab- ab- about Graceland that is fascinating him? And in another one of those very disappointing moments, it was just he liked the idea of writing a song about Graceland and it just came oh, out. Paul, and, stop revealing your secrets. I know. And, but then, you know, I, I do. Mr. Simon, please. <laughs> yeah. Sir, Sir Paul. No, that's, that's the other one. Um, but yeah, this, <laughs> this does find him on like, you know, searching for something. And the thing that he's searching for again is it, within America, you know, the, the Mississippi Delta, the national guitar, like it's very, very American. And he's searching for absolution. He's searching for family and home. And, you know, there's, there's the kind of the, the religious overtones of it where maybe he's searching for forgiveness and like, it's, it's such a wonderful song to kind of think about in terms of other songs he's written about that idea of searching because here he's not searching alone. But I al- I also love that like his child is mentioned <laughs> in the first stanza and then just like not really mentioned again. Um, but but yeah, so so Grace and as as an album, Paul Simon was led to set to South Africa to wanting to record in South Africa and work with South African musicians um, because he became really interested in accordion jive hits. He had this tape of like South African accordion music and he was obsessed with it and he he went to like his uh his producers and was like we need to find people who can do this who can play this and they were like okay yeah yeah we'll we'll find some people who can come into the studio and paul was like no like uh, no I, I mean find people in south africa who play who play this like we're not gonna we're not gonna find this music right here in america he, he wanted to go to, to south africa um because he was also expanding his knowledge about like South African music and the the differences that there are um, in 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 so many different ways in terms of like rhythmic components in terms of scales in terms of the importance of dance um, in terms of like, the visual component of it it was just there was so much that was outside of you know Western American popular music which at this point he'd kind of mastered. And I can't really blame him for like looking elsewhere in the world and seeing what else is going on to just kind of stimulate his own curiosity about music. Um, cause he's a very, very curious mind when it comes to how music is, is played. And I, I think he, he's always searching to kind of find whatever it is that, that is that kind of uniting force between different, um, different people who, who, who different music makers around the world. Um, so, I mean, after he, he, so he went and he recorded and there was obviously all, all of the controversy because there was a cultural boycott at the time. To tell you the truth, I have a feeling that when there are radical transfers of power on either the left or the right, the artists always get screwed. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an interesting um, point when it comes to cultural boycotts. Um, we're obviously seeing this happen now with Russia and I've, like you know there was Mm. there was some um in in the classical music world there were some performances um from i think from the russian ballet i remember early on in in the in the war that were pulled and there was a lot of conversation about you know what who who exactly that is hurting 
we're not here to talk to debate the merits of of um of cultural boycotts or 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 what we think you know is or is not appropriate but it's it's interesting that 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 comparison is there um and yeah and it's something that we everyone deals with like i mean you're talking about the dunn store strikers talking big you know yeah. apartheid is relating it to this and yeah Isra- you know, israel and as well um it's of course yeah, yeah cultural cultural boycotts are, are incredibly interesting i think i think the way that paul um went about kind of squaring it himself was was the idea that you know he wasn't going to South Africa to play a lot of stadium shows and make a lot of money? Yeah, I right? think it's a different. It's a different. It's it's not the same as like Israel being accused of you know um, using culture and Russia using sport, mm. for example, in order to ingratiate themselves with the wider world. It's not like uh, that kind of conversation. Yeah, um, honestly, what, what I, I think I paying I, people two hundred dollars an hour way more than they were used to as well um you know so you know it was employment as well as and uh and uh, collaboration as well as you know yeah. wasn't just purely i'm here to profit from you guys from a from an audience you know yeah i don't care what's happening in the world um yeah like i mean i'll, I'll hold my hands up and say that i have a very very rudimentary knowledge of of the kind of south african the, the history of um apartheid in in, in south africa so you know, it's like I said. I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to land on. Well, on, he was on going to work here, with but, the, the but, people. But who that's what I mean. Oppressed, it's you know. Well, that's that's certainly the way he he saw it. He um he was asked about why apartheid wasn't addressed in the lyrics, and he said, um, I still think it's the most powerful form of politics, uh, meaning music, more powerful than saying it right on the money, in which case you're usually preaching to the converted. People get attracted to the music and once they hear what's going on within it, they say, what, they're doing that to these people? So I think it was a way for him to work with people who he genuinely just on a musical level respected and wanted to work with. Um, And he wanted to make a great album. that fused, you know, American popular music and South African um, folk music and classical music, but also South, South African popular music as well, and and that's what he did. Um, and the it's it, it's maybe unfortunate that it took Paul Simon working with these artists for them to become known because obviously the optics out of it are white man goes to South Africa and collaborates with black musicians so that black musicians become known in America. Like it's not, Mm. it's also not rocket science to, you know, imagine that that's, that it's like, like, of course, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know what I'm trying Mm. to say. It's, it's like, it's like, uh, obviously, we live in a world where white men hold a, a, a cultural value in the decisions that they make. So collaborating with a white man, if you are not a white man, um, is probably going to expose you to an audience um, that is much, much broader. Um, these things are changing, but, you know, this was this mm. was a, a, a different time, as they say. But um but yeah, it's it's such a tricky thing to talk about, isn't it? Like because you end up not talking about the music then. And I think, you know, if 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 this album just sort of, 
you know, came out and and wasn't any good. Um, it it would have maybe been this kind of blot on on, on his career. But because it is the album that it is, and it is a 10 out of 10, no skip, just brilliant, groundbreaking album. Um, these these issues, they they get kind of thornier, right? Which, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's that's interesting. I have a, a clip of him talking about, um, he was asked, um, were these songs political? Um, about Graceland, and um, here's here's the most sincere expression of uh, my respect for these these musicians was not to go and stand up and say, "Let me describe your your plight and your burden, and I'll do that for you." My my idea was. They play their best, I'm going to play my best. I'm going to give them my best shot. I didn't come in here promising to do anything other than to make a really great record. I didn't, they didn't say, come in here and tell our story. They just said, yeah, you can come in and play. You know, we'll play with you. I happen to have a dislike for songs that are preachy. You know, you better do... You better be this. We gotta go there. And in the case of uh, the whole Graceland experience and the whole argument that that uh, that enveloped it for in the early stages, um, it was really about how to express uh, the indignation, uh, you know, with uh, you know, with the sin of apartheid. Are you going to get up there and, you know, say, I have incredible indignation with the sin of apartheid? Well, that's fine if you can say it musically. If you can't say it musically, it's a flop, and nobody's going to listen to you. And the other part of it was, you know, just trying to make a really great record with a bunch of really great musicians, and then bringing them out and playing around the world, and what you saw was... Uh, a white guy playing p- perfectly comfortably with black musicians, which was exactly the opposite of what apartheid stood for. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting... Um, I'm, I'm grateful that he was asked that question and that he got the opportunity to address it, I think, you know. I, th- I, think, he, I think he did a good job in terms of, like, making his intentions clear and but i think you can also hear in his voice that he's he's tired of being asked about what his intentions were or why didn't you do this because like when you're a songwriter like paul simon which is as we've talked throughout this podcast a very intuitive songwriter who just sort of you know in 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 that sort of mccarthy way finds lyrics and finds um finds melodies um that come to him and then if you as a journalist or a critic or a protester or an activist come to him and say well why didn't you do this instead it it it's so it's so difficult to kind of imagine what what that how confusing that would feel to him because he's like well that's not the songs I wrote I just I just didn't and there's no there's no real excuse that I would ever expect somebody to give 
in terms of like why why weren't you writing music like you you can say yeah okay in in terms of like modern day issues you can be like oh it, it would be great to see pop stars speak out about you know the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine or in Palestine or what whatever it is that's happening but to expect somebody to do it in their music i think is a much thornier tricky issue um and i think you can hear in that that he finds that a difficult question to answer because it just doesn't make sense to him why anybody would try to tell him what to write about you know hmm. yeah yeah i guess there's so many different ways of looking at it and and you know Certainly, he could have done more to engage with the people who were, uh, you know, instituting and, and the ALC about the boycott itself. But, you know, you can see both sides that, like, imagine a world where Graceland didn't exist because, mm. you know, he didn't do that. And and then these musicians didn't, you know, get known. And I guess it is that awkward, you know, push and pull of, okay, well, here's a white guy coming to help you know uplift <laughs> these musicians but i i don't even think that that's what he wanted to do that way i don't i no i don't think it was yeah but, you know you, I'm that's, that's that's what the, it looks like yeah look at it. yeah yeah it does it does kind of seem on paper like this white guy heard um some interesting kooky music from lands afar and went and took it and put it in his music and you know what, like if, if that is what somebody feels happened, I, I think that's, that's more, it's more than valid to feel that way. I just, I just don't see it that way. And I think that the evidence is in the mastery of the work um, and just how collaborative that album really is. Um, like it's not, it's not like taking a few samples of people and then do and then doing your own thing with it it's 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 a it's a work of great collaboration in in every single song i mean you you mentioned you you wanted to talk about um uh diamonds on the soles of her shoes um oh, or well, it's just you mentioned it's just absolutely it's, yeah it's one of my favorite songs <laughs> she's a rich girl she don't try to hide it diamonds on the soles of her shoes he's a poor boy empty as a pocket Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose Sing ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes Ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes 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 She's crazy, she got diamonds on the soles of her shoes Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues Diamonds on the soles of her shoes She was physically forgotten, but then she's 
and it's uh it's just a beautiful 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 song mm. you know i mean what else can you say about it just it's it offers so much and uh it's a great tune for if, if you're in the right place for an end of the night dj closer Play really that. I actually don't don't the do that once or twice oh wow it's, i've never i don't think i've ever played it but it's uh it's worked really well mm. in that uh context and it's just it's a it's, it's such a it's a song bursting with life and uh and yeah. many of these songs are that's a lovely way to put it it is bursting with life and those those vocal harmonies at, at in in the opening are just so beautiful and like it's <laughs> I, I, I just don't know how you can listen to a song like that and not feel the collaboration between all of the musicians. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's astounding. I saw it. Um, I saw Paul uh, in the three arena uh, on what was supposed to be his final tour. Um, <laughs> but then he came back again afterwards. But um, I saw him in the three arena. It was the most expensive concert ticket I ever bought. It was like a hundred and something quid. And the only seat that was left by the time I'd saved up, I was working like part-time at the time, so I had no money. And the only ticket left by the time I'd saved up was I think like three rows from the front in the middle on my own. So all my friends were somewhere else, but I was like down the front with like all these moms and dads. And I was like in my like early to mid twenties, I think. Maybe I'm mixing it. No, no, it would have been around that. Maybe in my mid twenties, and just all these moms and dads just adopted me. It was like because I was si- I was sitting in a section with like you know grown up people who could afford to spend over a hundred quid on a on a gig ticket and not like not have to eat that week, which is what I was basically like. But they all just adopted me, and and it was so beautiful. It was so brilliant. He, he played Graceland. He played this song, and it was just like it was euphoric like it was absolutely stunning and he was amazing um i was one of the best gigs i've ever been to um he's such a wonderful live performer as well have you ever seen him live no i haven't no that was the only opportunity i think i would have had yeah. to see him that was, was yeah no i don't think he's played an awful lot here maybe not no i think he's now done touring but Is you he? never know yeah. he, he says yeah. this he said it more than once um yeah okay um I'm, I'm aware that we're we're um this is this is a long episode already but um i'm gonna talk about the obvious child um okay before that i just want to okay. like, is graceland responsible for vampire weekend as well because like <laughs> i thought you were gonna I ask mean, a much more serious draw, question there <laughs> <laughs> they draw from the same like i mean there's a bit of african guitar here there's a bit of like yeah. by virtue of the the players on it but um you could you could argue that Vampire Weekend's music because of the way that they do it and the references that they use are more wholesale mining yeah. African culture for for the for that purpose rather than it there's no it's not inclusion there. Yeah, I mean maybe that's that's Influence, an interesting um it's an interesting kind of strand to go down because I think when people talk about Graceland and the circumstances of its recording in a negative way i th- i think there's probably a fair um a fair point to be made that it did open the gates for western musicians to kind of mine is strong but it 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 exposed people like Ezra Koenig who who says that you know Paul Simon is one of his heroes and he was absolutely 
influenced by Graceland. But I guess I guess it, it, it exposed a lot of, uh, you know, young Western musicians, Western guitar players to new sounds, new tones, new things to play with because they weren't they weren't drawing from the primary source as it were you know they weren't drawing directly mm. from south african music and south african culture they were drawing from graceland and graceland was was the kind of the the nexus of you know american popular music in in the in the 1960s 70s 80s you know paul paul simon i mean was the was the nexus of american popular music and then obviously the the influence of of south african music on that you 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 don't by by nature of what the album is you don't separate it it's not as if it has american parts and african parts so you can't like yeah, once well, that's why it what, works so well. once you kind of present that fusion to the world you can't take it back you can't break it down into its component parts so i don't blame musicians who inadvertently or not um kind of draw from Graceland without fully understanding that it's not it it, it it can't be separated from that idea of fusion and I think Vampire Weekend are a very interesting um, example of maybe a band who was most informed by one album <laughs> you know what I mean like you you listen to Vampire Weekend and you know that they love Graceland you know and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I also don't think that by the time Vampire Weekend came out, I don't think it was that controversial. Um, oh, certainly not. To 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 kind of to use African sounding, you know, guitars or rhythms in popular music. It just might have felt a bit strange because they were doing it with like. Um this very specific kind of white guitar music, I guess, um, that wasn't yeah. folk and therefore maybe didn't have as much, um, as much kind of cultural crossover as, you know, if, if somebody like Joni or Dylan was, <laughs> was doing it or, or Paul Simon, you know, but yeah, it's a very interesting kind of strand to go down because once, once you introduce Grace on to the, to Western popular music, you know, you cannot unhear the ringing bell. People are people are going to be influenced by it. Um, and I mean, I'm glad as well because I love Vampire Weekend. So it's yeah, it's a funny I think it's one. just like it's it's interesting to at least to know mm. that when they came out, there was just no conversation about that. Mm. I think it's a different era now. And that's a good thing because you yeah, just wouldn't, the band Beirut you as wouldn't, well. It wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, true. We've mentioned Beirut yeah. in that way as well. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, Ezra uh, did actually collaborate with a band called The Very Best, who were kind of um, more. He was a Malawi artist, and uh, he sang a song with him. A Warm Heart of Africa was the name of the song, actually, um, that Ezra did uh, with The Very Best. Um, so he was. Um, he did do a later collaboration. That was two thousand nine. Mm. But anyway. Um, just to note, the the more overt, um, you know, influence was actually made a a collaboration happen. Mm, so. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I mean, a song that's well, not back to Paul Simon. Yeah, back to Paul Simon. A song that's not on Graceland, but I always feel should be is the Obvious Child, um, which it just sounds like it should be on Graceland. Like it's, I I always expect it to be there, 
Um, but it's it's the first song on the rhythm, rhythm of the Saints, which was the follow up album uh, to Grace on that came out in 1990, I believe. And the Obvious Child is one of my favorite Paul Simon songs. It's it's up there. It's like the Obvious Child and America constantly battle um, because they're they're two very different songs, and I love them both for different reasons. But I think the the influence of Paul's time in South Africa and in creating the Graceland record on this track is huge. Like it, it, it completely changed how he thought about music and how he wrote music, that experience. I mean, I think he said about it, what, what was it? Um, there was the almost mystical aff- um, affection and strange familiarity I felt when I first heard South African music. Later, there was the visceral thrill of collaborating with South African musicians on stage Add to this the uh, add to this potent mix the new friendships I made with my bandmates and the experience becomes one of the most vital in my life. And I think that you you can absolutely hear that in in, in the music that he made afterwards, especially in Obvious Child. I feel like it, in the Obvious Child should should we listen to it first? Are you familiar with this song? Yeah, let's play it. Let's okay, play let's it. listen to it. That was great. Um, it's a nice way of, uh, you know, I can see the. it's nice to hear the segue from Graceland to somewhere else mm. where he went, you know. Yeah. First track on the album. Yeah. And like, this song is all rhythm. Like, I feel like everything in this song is like, there's the drums, of course, which are just so big and bold and loud and brilliant. But there's also those like, those coarse guitars, like the brass I, I just I just think everything in this song is just so like like pounding and loud and brilliant and celebratory but the but the lyrics are are sort of not that you know it, it it's that great juxtaposition that he always does in his you know his big kind of pop songs that are actually incredibly sad and I love the kind of if you if you listen to just the acoustic guitar chords beneath it um they're kind of shifting in these really interesting ways like like I was talking about earlier just these these he'll he, he he's a kind of he's a kind of guitarist who will say like why say something in two chords when you can say it in six you know like he'll if, if he can slip in a cool little harmonic shift or a root from one chord to, to another that's a little bit spicy he will do it and the acoustic guitar in the in this song if you can like isolate it 
is is that but then later on it kind of it gets unearthed in this really beautiful way when when the rest of the song kind of just falls away from it and in that middle section and it's just Paul and the guitar and right there in the background the drums are kind of always there um the that this is the midsection where he's talking about Sonny as he grows grows older which are some of which are, I think my favorite lyrics that he's ever written and it's like that's what makes him the best I think because he has he's the musicianship of Joni Mitchell he has the lyrical capabilities of Bob Dylan but he always has this like curiosity about music and rhythms and practices outside of Western popular music that that just sets him apart I mean we, we on, on the Joni episode we talked about her collaboration with Mingus you know she, she also had this this mind of you know, always searching for something different and bigger and new ways for herself to grow and learn as a musician. And she did that through jazz. Paul Simon does it through quote unquote world music and, and his, um, his exposure to South African music. And this is such a beautiful culmination of of all those things, because you get you get the rhythms and and the like veracity of the of the sound of the music but then you also get to bring it back to Paul Simon's like what why I love Paul Simon as as a lyricist um you get this story of Sonny and like the, the 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 lyrics are on halfway through like Sonny sits by his window and thinks to himself how it's strange that some rooms are like cages okay first of all like that's is that not perfect you know and so Sonny's yearbook from high school is down from the shelf he idly thumbs through the pages some have died some have fed for themselves or struggled from here to get there Sonny wanders beyond his interior walls runs his hand down his thinning brown hair through his thinning brown hair now I've listened to those lyrics I'd say like over 500 times like I, I really love this song and those lyrics it's like like I, I feel like I know Sonny. I feel like I can picture the room he's in. I can picture the yearbook. I, I know what the weather looks like outside that window. I, I know the kind of the feeling of this, this older, larger man being shoved into this, you know, the smaller space that he occupied as a child, like, and feeling like it's a cage. And he just, he just says all of that in, in, you know, like one verse and you, you, you're suddenly towards the end of this person's life. And it's so, it's just so brilliant. Like I, I can't even really, you know, analyze it in any real way because I'm, I'm too close to it. It's just such a beautiful way to kind of show the passing of time. And like, it's also a banger. So I'm just like, I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, it's incredible. Mm. And then it, there's those those drums at the end. Do, do do you know about the outro? Have you heard the outro before? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, not nothing about the outro. Just just I love it. Uh, just that 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 kind of that rhythm section oh. at at the end where where it just like it keeps going like double time with itself. It's it's so brilliant. It's amazing. Um. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> there are so many songs we could talk about. We I know. We haven't talked about still. I know. I mean, we, we didn't even mention You Can Call Me Al, like, which is one of the, you, you used the word banger there. I mean, that is an ultimate banger. That is like yeah. One of the, a banger for the ages. What a song. And what a song that, again, 
you know, from my DJ brain and you're like, you can play that anytime. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can call me Al anytime. And, I think, uh, I, think I, I left out call me Al in the same way that in the Joni Mitchell episode, I left out um, the yellow taxi. <laughs> it was just one of those where I was yeah, like, well, it's, but yeah, I mean, we God, don't need one, to talk about one it, of the greatest pop songs and one of the greatest videos, music videos. Like it's yeah. really, really good music video. I know Chevy Chase is a dick and all, but like that's a great music video. Um and there's countless other songs that we haven't brought up. Um I know we are we are we're we're certainly running when it comes to time here, but I've I've one I've <laughs> one more clip that I that I want to play. Yeah. And this is Paul it's it's a beautiful um it's part of a beautiful um interview um that he did he he did a few interviews um with uh with dick cavett on on his um his late night show that are absolutely worth seeking out um just if if nothing else i mean it's incredible to see that there was once all of these you know these shows that were actually watched by people where people talk very very intelligently about the nitty-gritty parts of songwriting um and when you compare it to like you know the jimmy fallons of the world right now it does actually make you fucking weep um but we have them you know we have the we have the archives but this is um paul simon bringing a half-finished still crazy after all these years to Dick Cavett and asking if he would like to help him um, write, help help him write the song. Um, and it's just one of the most wonderful things in the world. Here's what I mean. Uh, that's a chord, Rick. This is a chord, yeah. It happens to be uh, an E minor seventh chord. Well, I knew that, but I... Or, or a G sixth. They're exactly the same chords. Much the same. Much. Here's a song. Here's a song I'm working on. I haven't got it finished. I'll show you. I'll go up to the point where I've stopped, all right? All right, maybe perhaps I can help you. And I would appreciate your help if you could, because I've been stumped here for a while. I finished a lyric for Stephen Sondheim once on the show, so go ahead. <laughs> he didn't use it, but... Okay. I met my old lover on the street last night. She seems so glad to see me, I just smiled And we talked about some old times And we drank ourselves some beers Still crazy after all these years Oh, still crazy after all these years I'm not the kind tends to socialize no, I seem to lean on old familiar ways and I ain't no fool for love songs that whisper in your ears still crazy after all these years oh still crazy after all these years it has the, that has that has the right inflection yeah it's one of those lines that has the, that has that has the right inflection. Yes. It swings. It swings yeah. on the crash. It would be filthy. Well, anyway, my my point is that if I go to this key where I'm changing keys, I can get these notes in that I haven't used C and C C sharp. And mm -hmm. although the, the listener will not 
ever consciously say, those are two new notes I haven't heard. In fact, it will be refreshing to the ear. It will. In other words, it will be new. somehow more satisfying to use the complete set, even to those of us who know nothing about, yes. uh, those of them, I mean, who yes. knew nothing about music. And the same principle That's would hold true really in, uh, I, I imagine the same principle would hold true in comedy. If you, if you use, a, you develop a certain, uh, you establish some kind of comedic pattern, mm. and you do it twice, and by the time you do it once, you do it twice, it reinforces it. By the third time, you, you have to change it. You can't repeat something three times. It's not funny because Even once you hear something to... twice, I yeah. think you, you understand, you've got it. Yeah. By the third time, you, ha you have to alter it in order for it to be fresh, and then you can come back That's again to something. That is true of comedy. You'll see stand-up comics who will do the same joke form three right. times and get away with it, but then they do it the fourth time and the audience catches on to it. You know, I think say, not even three. I think it's two. Maybe. For maybe me, that's the for maximum. My, for my uh, span, of con uh, span of attention, which is... Um, so that's just one of my favorite things to watch. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely interview, um, and I would absolutely encourage people to seek out as many videos of the two of them talking together um as you can because um dick, dick cavett is, is a wonderful uh interviewer and really gives paul space to talk um because paul's not a very comfortable person um and it's amazing to kind of see him being interviewed um he he tends to be quite awkward but whenever he's interviewed with the guitar in his hand, he's just immediately so comfortable because he's in this space that he really understands. And I, I think he did a really, really good job of explaining harmonies there, explaining like, you know, what, what a scale is, what a sharp is, how, how decisions are made about what chord to use next. Um, it, it almost felt like a lesson, um, which I really love. It's, it's not, it's not this kind of mystical thing to him. He's a, I, I said it before in this podcast that, that he's a, he's a very learned guitarist. He, he wants to be an expert. He wants to, he wants to complete the guitar, you know? Um, I really admire that about him. And I think that's a lovely, it's a lovely insight to how he views music. He's like, Hmm, where can I go from here? That's interesting. Oh, well, I haven't used my, my C natural yet, or I haven't used my, I haven't used my C sharp yet, or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's just really a really nice, warm interview, I think. And I say to finish up. Nice, nice. Very good, very good. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much more we didn't talk about. There's uh, so much more. We are, we are long on time. Yeah. Um, oh, but, I, I could do know, a part I mean, two later in the year. <laughs> if people want more yeah, Paul Simon, could. I could do that. I could do a part two later. But um, this is this is a long episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, it's great. Um, I'm into it. Just, Sweet. you know, I, I think it's nice just to hone in on a few aspects as opposed to yeah. try and be exhaustive sometimes. So, um, yeah, be, because that can be exhausting. Yeah. But it is nice. to Like, we like look, you can call me Al. You can go listen to it. You know what it sounds like. You've heard it a million, million times yeah. and it's still as good as you heard it the first time. Mm. And it and sometimes it gets better. But, <laughs> you know, call me it's, Al is, I think is a song saying, that got better for me the older I got, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it means more to me now because I've I've heard it in different situations, and yeah, you know, and it, it's it, it's a song it's I like, associate like with a, my friends a lot, actually, like a certain group of friends. Yeah, it's like picking picking up meaning as you roll along in life, mm. and that's what some of the best. Yeah, actually, are, do you know what? Like, do you know what's really nice? The the way in the Steely Dan episode, the way you were you were explaining to me that you have a specific group of friends who when you're all together you'll all listen to Steely Dan um and I have a group of friends that when we're all together 
um, we'll always listen to Paul Simon. We'll always put on Graceland. Uh, we'll watch either the live show or we'll put on the album and we'll all dance around to Call Me Al. And it's a really lovely buzz that's similar to your kind of Steely Dan thing. So, yeah, it's great. It's very uniting music. Nice. Mm. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. This is the music of our lives. <laughs> and the, okay, like well, we'll leave it there the for hourglass. this This is the music of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's plenty more to listen to, and you know where to start. But look, that's yeah. a good, that's a good, uh, that is a good primer to for for Paul Simon because it can be quite exhausting to go and yeah. dig deep into somebody's entire catalog. Mm. And even if you know them or not, it is always a, a bit of a challenge. Um, so that's a nice way of looking at it. So yeah. Um, Thank you, Andrea, for sharing that. With Thank us. you, um, Niall. Really um, we're going to be back next um, week to talk about Kendrick Lamar, little known rapper. Yes. Uh, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, we neither of us have the album because they're not giving the album to anybody. No one has. The album. Uh, no one has the album. So um, we're going to be listening to it like like Joe Public um, on Friday. I mean, hopefully we're right about it. You know, <laughs> with the rest everyone of will just be able to hear it yeah, no, I'm, as normal. I'm really Mr. Excited. Morale and the Big Steppers. I'm so excited, man. What I, would it look I like? I cannot fucking wait. Like, I'm, I'm absolutely buzzing about this album. Um, I'm yeah. actually... Well, obviously we got one song this week which is yeah. not from the album. It is uh, The Heart Part 5 yeah. which is the pre-release track that he does a lot um, before an album. Mm. So I don't even know if you can tell if that's going to be, I don't think it's going to give you any indication about where the album will land yeah, musically no or sonically. We really don't. We know, know. it's a but double album, but that's a, all. Um, I'll, I'll do yeah, a slight plug. That one has a Marvin Gaye I'm going to be on um, RTE Arena on Friday night reviewing this and some other albums as well at half seven. So you can tune in and listen to that if you like. Lovely. Mm. Lovely. And do you have something else to promote, perhaps? <gasps> yeah, I do. Um, my favorite album with Andrea Cleary, season two, out today. Uh, episode one features Fanula Jones, absolute queen of my fucking Bam. heart. Um, she chose uh, Take take This, Take Me, Take take, take It to Your Grave, uh, the first studio album by American emo band Fall Out Boy. And um, Belated band. It was... It, it was such a fun chat. So that's available on all your podcast places. Um, it also, it's a newish podcast. So if you wanted to give it a share or like or tell someone about it, please do. That please would be nice. do. Because nice. um, my, my, my Twitter is still on, uh, on private. So I can't get like retweets. <laughs> so if other people want to share it, that'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And it's patreon.com forward slash 909. Come and join our Discord. Do. We're having chats. Disco um, Discord. Come join us. Great. Okay, I'm going to go and have dinner and have a lovely evening, hopefully. Can you guess what I'm going to do um, tonight? Um, it's the same. Are you going to go listen? As I've done the past two Wednesdays, <laughs> which is I'm going to go watch Selling Sunset with my friend. Yes, <laughs> of course. So excited. Of course. Okay. Very good. Thanks, everyone. Okay, enjoy that. Bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.